We're going to continue tonight what we've been doing over the last few weeks, just working our way through the book of Revelation, and particularly this time uh, looking at the, the letters to the churches. And tonight the focus is on uh, to the letter to the church in Thyatira. So I'm going to read this now from Revelation chapter 2 and from verse 18. And we read, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their, of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule over them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank God again for his word and for all that lies within it. So let's just come and pray together. Lord, we pray that you will speak to us clearly tonight and that we will be given the ability to understand, the ability to, to take in, and then the ability to live out the truth that you deliver here. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, most of us like to, to have our secrets, don't we? And for those of us who are parents of young children, there are times when we have to have secrets. Now, the way this began for us many years ago and come with many others was by spelling out words. That's the way we started. And in those great days, before our children learned to spell, it was easy to keep a secret. But then along came that dreaded day when education began to make its mark. What was worrying was when Elaine spelt things out to me and the children began to get it before I did. That was a worry. So what I then decided to do, I felt I had to get a wee different level of complexity going on. What I decided to move on to, much to Elaine's exasperation, I have to say, was a kind of self-invented association technique where I would say something often very remotely 
connected with the secret, with the information I was trying to get across. Maybe just even a, a kind of similar sounding word. And then, with the help of a whole load of gestures, grimaces, groans and grunts, I would kind of try to, to get Elaine to click on to what I was trying to say. And looking back, I have to say it was not a pretty sight, I'm sure. But then sadly, I had to give this up too. And I had to give it up for two reasons. First, because my wife refused to demean herself by playing along with my semi-demented games. And second, because the children began to again get onto things quicker than either Elaine or I. They knew, you see, that there was a connection between what I was saying and that as soon as they got to that, they would have the secret. That is, they would get to the solution. They would know exactly what I was talking about. Well, all this points us to where we're going to begin here tonight with the church at Thyatira. We're going to begin by looking at the secret. And by that, what I mean is the statement made in this passage, the understanding of which really acts as a key that opens up the rest of these verses for us. And it's found here in verse 18, in John's words, that, that a part of, of his description of his initial vision of the Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. But here he says, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, now these words from this vision, Revelation 1, are obviously here applied to the church in Thyatira because they are extremely significant. These words aren't said. This vision wasn't given just as a, a kind of space filler. Not that. Nor just to sound kind of poetically impressive. Not that either. No, as with everything else in the book of Revelation, this is said for a purpose. In this case, a very specific purpose. And the first clue, I believe, as to just what that purpose is here, is given in the words that are translated into English as burnish bronze. And you see, this is significant because the context here, the context was that whereas Ephesus, the first church we looked at, was the commercial centre of the Roman province of Asia Minor, and Smyrna, its cultural capital, Pergamum, its political capital, well, Thyatira was its trade capital. It was the industrial centre, if you like, of this province. And you know, the interesting thing here about the word that we translate burnished bronze is that this is the only place that this word itself is actually found, not just in the New Testament, but in the whole of Greek literature. So don't you think that tells us that what underlines be, that's what that which is being said here is something special? Must be. And then we dig a little bit deeper. And we find that among all the, the different trades in Thyatira, that there was a guild of coppersmiths who were famous throughout the region, throughout the known world, for having developed a very sophisticated technique for making a particularly fine kind of brass. Well, you see, when we take that into account, 
along with the other detail that we find in this vision, with the Son of God also having eyes like, like flashing fire. Well, what does that suggest? What does that say to us? Surely that there was a hidden problem, that there was an underlying problem in this church. That though on the surface everything seemed fine, just like burnished bronze, it looked good, it looked impressive, yet beneath the surface there was something hidden that was very wrong. There was an hypocrisy, a double-mindedness of some kind that Christ, the all-seeing Christ, knew all about and unless it was dealt with, threatened the future of this church, or at least as we see, of a sizable portion of the church. However, the church need not give up though, for there is hope. There is hope, for Christ is their protector and defender, and he is the one whose feet are clothed in armor, in burnished bronze, whose foundations then are secure. The one who will not be moved, no matter what is hurled against him, and neither will his people. They need not be moved, provided their foundation in turn is truly in him. That's the secret then. That's the, the key that's given here in this description of Christ. I believe helps us to understand more clearly the rest of what the Lord goes on to say here to his people. So let's move on just to dig into this, to look moving on at just what this passage then has to say about the, the situation. That's the situation of the church at Thyatira. And the situation is that, that spiritually there was so much that was good about this church. For it is a church where there is faith towards God where there is a heart filled with a desire to love and to serve men, and where there is a spirit of endurance, a spirit of perseverance in the, the face of all the obstacles that are being placed in their way by the world. And this is a church that in many ways has continued to grow in Christ since its birth. It hasn't stood still. It hasn't gone back. All this is said, I think, about this church in verse 19. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. And yet, despite this, as we glance just a little bit further on, we see that there is something wrong, seriously wrong, with this church. So what is it then? What can be so wrong about what is obviously a good church? So wrong that it brings such strong words of judgment and condemnation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what I would suggest to you is that I believe the roots of their problem here lay again in the physical situation of Thyatira. Remember what we said just a few moments ago that this was the, the trade center of all of Asia. It's not just a, a claim we pluck out of anywhere. There's archaeological evidence of this. There's various inscriptions, plaques that have been found in that area advertising all sorts of different trades. And all this is underlined to some extent by the biblical evidence. For example, in Acts 16, 14, we, we find that Lydia, a dealer in what was the 
the ultra-expensive purple cloth in Philippi, we find that she came from Thyatira, that, that basically that she was the representative there in Philippi of the purple cloth company of Thyatira. But you see, if, if you take this, alongside what we, we looked at, touched on earlier, that the feet like burnished bronze were in all probability an allusion to the most specialised trade of all in, in this city. If we take all this on board, then I believe we're, we're almost driven to the conclusion that in some way the problems of Thyatira lay in the trades of Thyatira, in the different guilds of butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, and on, in the almost innumerable guilds that existed in that city and that were its real centre of power. Because, you see, if you were in the guild, if you were accepted by the guild, then you got work. If not, well, then you and your family might well go hungry. So what was the problem? Well, we're going to uncover it as we move on just a wee bit more to look at the, the sin of Thyatira. So what could it be? What, the sin, what sin could there be in being involved in what we've just described, the simple kind of trade guild that's all, all around today, continues in the unions of today? Well, quite simply, it's this. In the after a trade guild had conducted their business, usually in a pagan temple, that was the kind of town hall of their time, they then typically would finish this by participating in idol worship. And they then sat down to a meal where meat from an animal that had in their presence been sacrificed to idols was eaten. And following this, sexual immorality involving temple prostitutes was, was common. So you see, this put the Christians there in a very difficult position. Because these things seemed to be totally against their Christian faith. Seemed to be totally incompatible with a relationship with a holy God. And yet, if they didn't in, in some way join in, their whole livelihood, the future of their, their family could be at risk. They were in a dilemma where loyalty to Jesus Christ, being a true disciple, seemed to be demanding one thing, but where comfort, prosperity, popularity, getting on, being accepted, required a very different response. And then into this, along comes a woman. Someone obviously with a, a commanding personality, with a forceful teaching style, who said to them, listen, listen here. You don't have to make a choice. You don't have to be a fanatic. No, rather what you need to do is, is you need to learn that if you're truly in the spirit, that is if you are truly spiritually mature, well then, what you do with your body, what, where you go, what you see, what you hear, what you eat, etc., etc., then all these things don't really matter. Not if you are truly spiritually strong. 
Because you see, if that's the case, then you can do whatever you want. You can, as it says here, explore Satan's deep secrets. You can do your worst and you will not come to one scrap of spiritual harm. And these other people, these people with their must-do and mustn't-do Christianity, these people are just spiritually weak, pathetic individuals. Pay them no mind. Now here, this woman is called Jezebel. She's given that name because she's very much seen as following in the line, in the tradition of the original Old Testament Jezebel. You know, a pagan princess who married into the the royal family of Israel who then tried to persuade, to bribe, induce, and then when all else failed, to bully God's people into compromise. Because that, you see, is what this is actually about. This is what it's about. It's dressed up in the guise of spiritual maturity, but that is what this is all about. It's about God's people being tempted, enticed, tricked, seduced into compromise. And you know, really, this is just such a a common ploy of the devil to work God's people into a place where they think they are being spiritually mature when actually they're being lured into sinful worldliness. And I'll tell you, this is something that the devil is about in a big way in our own time, in our own culture, and I think has been for a number of years. Now, let me explain what I mean and why I'm saying this. We live today at a time when, by and large, Christians have abandoned the legalism of a fairly recent past. That's true. I believe it is. I think most of you will. That the old Christianity that had lots of rules and regulations, lots of don't do's, don't go's, that unthinkingly many Christians just went along with, that's largely gone now, is it not? I believe it has. And now, well, most Christians live a life of freedom in the Spirit. Isn't that so? I tell you, I don't believe it's so. Rather, what I believe we have now is many Christians who previously, unthinkingly, in the flesh, didn't do things, who now, still unthinkingly, in the flesh, are now doing them. You see, it's all just carnal, immature Christianity, dressed up in a different guise, Dressed up in a different form. Let me give you a simple example. Maybe around 35 years ago, maybe a little bit more, I knew a a young Christian man from a fairly tight and traditional background of that time who, during the period when more and more Christians were, well, I think some of them were genuinely finding a new freedom in the Spirit and a new closeness to the Lord, really drawing close to God. Well, this young man at this time jumped on to that bandwagon. But he picked and chose the aspects of Christian freedom that suited him. So he was decided he was free to go to the pub regularly. He decided that he was now so spiritually mature that he didn't have to read the Bible that much anymore. 
whirled it on a few years, and he was divorced from a lovely Christian woman. He had a drink problem, and primarily, I believe, because of shame, he kept almost totally away from his Christian friends and never went to a church service. So I say, please understand this. Please get hold of this. Worldliness that is compromised with the world isn't ultimately about geography. It isn't. It isn't about where you go or where you don't go. It isn't even primarily about what you do or you don't do. No, rather, worldliness and its counterpart, mature spirituality, faithfulness to God, these things are, above all, about the heart. They're about the mind. They're about the spirit. For it is when Jesus Christ is Lord of our heart and mind and spirit. And it's when we then live out our life in the light of that key principle of Christ's lordship, it's then that we will be free to live as faithful, spiritually mature Christians. So you see, the big question should always be, must I believe always be, is Jesus Lord? Am I going here? Am I doing this? Am I making these lifestyle choices? Am I choosing to live as I am with Jesus as Lord? Because Jesus is Lord. Am I bringing glory to Christ by my choices, by the way that I'm living my life? Because you see, if instead of this, we, we just go through life following everybody else rather than, than Jesus. If we follow the heart, just go along like an unthinking sheep. Well, it doesn't matter much at that point whether our life is all about rules and regulations or whether we are, live as we like Christians who try to pass that off as spiritual freedom. It doesn't matter which of them we are because once you scratch beneath the surface, it's actually the same beast underneath. Carnal, worldly, immature, spiritually immature Christians. And this can be seen, I think, in the church of today. As in John's day, we are being lured and seduced into compromise. We are being fooled into thinking that what is actually an undisciplined, unfaithful Christian life is a mature Christian life. It's wrong. It always has been. Since the days of the New Testament, right up till today, it's wrong. And unless it's dealt with, it will inevitably lead to spiritual disaster. D.S. D.L. Moody once famously said, he said that living the Christian life in the world is like being a ship on the ocean. And it's our job to be out there in the ocean. It's our job to be out there in the world. But then he went on. But if the ocean gets into us, that is, if this world and its principles begin to control us, then we are in big trouble. Big, big trouble. Again, as we've, we've said a number of times before this, the, I believe the biblical principle is, is John 17, 14, 15, that we are to be in the world, but not 
of the world. And in keeping that, that difficult balance, and it is a difficult balance, what matters most in that is not where we go or what we do. What matters most is really, actually, as we search our hearts, who is in control? Who is controlling us within, in our heart, in our mind? And if there are times or, or situations when that's in doubt, then we need to stand back from that. We need to get out of there fast. If we're going to please God, know his blessing, and bring glory to him, we need to step away. But that brings us on to what we're going to finish by looking at now, and that is the, the solution here. The solution in terms not of dealing with this after it's taken place, although we can do that by repentance, but rather the solution in the sense of, of nipping this in the bud, stopping this happening in the first place. So the root of the compromise here was in false teaching and false prophecy, the root problem. So how can we deal with this in such a way as to prevent it taking place? Well, first of all, I think we've got to begin here by being ready to deal with this. And you know, that's not as easy. Not as easy as it sounds. Because today, as in the first century, we live now in a time, we're set in a society when concepts like, like tolerance and flexibility are now much more admired than other concepts like principles and absolutes. People don't like them. People who are seen as open and accepting of everyone, these people are applauded. Those who, for whatever other reason, are seen as narrow-minded, they are reviled as bigots. Now, here I want to say that there's plenty of room for tolerance and flexibility in the Christian life. There's lots of room for that. We should be tolerant and should be flexible. But if having principles, if believing that there is such a thing as right and wrong, absolute truth, if loyalty to the teaching of the Bible earns me the label narrow-minded, then I say, stick it right on me. Because when it comes to that which touches on the core of our faith, when it comes to key Christian teaching, teaching that relates to the essence of what Christianity is or to the demands of holiness of life, on these things, we must be immovable. We should not give an inch. And if the world thinks, or even if other sectors of the church think that we're bigots because of this, then I say, so be it. I would rather come under their judgment than under God's. Now, having said this, it also has to be said that discernment, that which touches on core subjects and key areas of the Christian life, isn't always easy. It isn't always easy. For instance, I can imagine Jezebel and her followers say it as a, a response here, but, but aren't we as Christians called to be witnesses to the world? Aren't we called to get alongside them, to identify them so that we can win them for Jesus? Of course we are. But if in order to do this, it's necessary to commit idolatry, if to get near them, it's necessary to engage in immorality. If that's the choice, then at that point, it's better to be separate and isolated. That's the will of God for us. 
But taking all of this into account, how do we discern? You know, if we're hearing something that's, that's new to us, maybe, or perhaps we're being challenged about something that we've accepted and believed for a long time and some difference being said, and we wonder, how do we discern whether or not this is from the Lord? Well, let me summarize for you just some of the main relevant New Testament teaching. So what the, the New Testament tells us to look for, first of all, is does the content of a prophecy, of a teaching, and does the character of the prophet or teacher, does this confirm to the teaching of Christ and his apostles? Matthew 7, 20 to 23, 1 John 4, 6. Second, does the message bring honor to Christ? John 16, 14. You know, does it shine the light on Christ and his glory rather than on a speaker and his ambition? Third, does it build the church up in Christ? 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 4. Fourth, is it delivered with love, that famous 1 Corinthians 13? Fifth, does the rest of the church, the wider church, and particularly the mature leaders and teachers of the church, do they sense that God is speaking through what a messenger is sharing? 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Well, let me finish just by repeating to you once more, to, just to end it all. Please understand, and please, I hope, get hold of the fact that all that we're reading here in the first century isn't remote and academic. It's not. This is as real and as relevant for us today as ever before. Because the call to compromise, to fit in with contemporary culture, and false teaching conveyed by convincing attractive false teachers. This today is as widespread as it was in the first century. And this is something, as it clearly says here, tells us here, this is something that if we don't deal with it, will bring upon us judgment. Will bring judgment on us. But maybe those we think of this responsibility, you know, we feel overwhelmed and inadequate. How can we judge? How can we ever discern and sift out false teaching? Now, if that's where you are, filled with the thought of your own inadequacy and frailty, then I say take heart from what it says here about the morning star. Verse 27 and 28. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. You see, this is a, a title of Jesus found originally in the Old Testament in a prophecy about Jesus, the coming Messiah, spoken by Balaam in, in Numbers 24, verse 17. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And in the, the New Testament, this title, a title that, that suggests supremacy, suggests authority, this title is attributed directly to the Lord Jesus. Revelation 22, 16, he's called the bright morning star. But you know, in addition to this, those living in Thyatira, that remember was a, a city of the pagan Roman Empire, they would be aware of another strand of meaning here. Because in the pagan world, the morning star was understood to be 
the planet Venus. And the goddess Venus, their goddess, the goddess of the pagans, she was seen as the symbol of authority. So you see, when you put all this together, I believe this is a promise from the Lord. A promise to the people of God that as we seek to be loyal and faithful, as we do all in our power, all we're able to do to live holy, uncompromised lives, as we seek with the best of our ability to discern and to sift out truth from falsehood, as we do that, seeking the Lord, the God who is the Lord, the God who is sovereign and who has all authority, that he promises that he will be with us and that he will give us the wisdom and the discernment we need to identify the truth. That he will give us the strength and endurance that we need to hold to the truth. That he will give us all we need if only we turn to him and base our lives wholly upon him. Let's come and pray together. Father, we just want to thank you again tonight that your word written all those centuries ago is as relevant and powerful in our day as it was in the day that it was first written and spread around those churches in Asia Minor. Lord, you're speaking to your people. You're speaking to us right now about the need to, to make sure that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. To make sure that what we do, where we go, how we live is an expression of the Lordship of Jesus. Father, you want us to be able to discern truth from falsehood. You've given us your word. You've given us the Holy Spirit. You promise to lead and to guide us, help us to go forward trusting in you. Lord, bless your people. Lead us more and more into your will that we might be a people who bring glory to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.